Chapter Ten of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. Before I proceed farther with the events of that morning, I must return for a time to the evening which preceded it. It was a dark and somewhat dreary night when Mr. Radford, leaving his son stupidly drunk at Sir Robert Croyland's, proceeded to the hall door to mount his horse and as he pulled his large riding-boots over his shoes and stockings and looked out he regretted that he had not ordered his carriage who would have thought he said that such a fine day would have ended in such a dull evening it often happens my dear radford replied sir robert croyland who stood beside him that everything looks fair and prosperous for a time then suddenly the wind shifts and a gloomy night succeeds mr radford was not well pleased with the homily it touched upon that which was a sore subject with him at that moment, for, to say the truth, he was labouring under no light apprehensions regarding the results of certain speculations of his. He had lately lost a large sum in one of these wild adventures, far more than was agreeable to a man of his money-getting turn of mind, and though he was sanguine enough from long success to embark, like a determined gambler, a still larger amount in the same course, yet the first shadow of reverse which had fallen upon him brought home and applied to his own situation the very commonplace words of sir robert croyland and he began to fancy that the bright day of his prosperity might be indeed over and a dark and gloomy night about to succeed as we have said therefore he did not at all like the baronet's homily and as very often happens with men of his disposition he felt displeased with the person whose words alarmed him. Murmuring something, therefore, about it being a devilish ordinary circumstance indeed, he strode to the door, scarcely wishing the baronet good-night, and mounted a powerful horse which was held ready for him. He then rode forward, followed by two servants on horseback, proceeding slowly at first, but getting into a quicker pace when he came upon the parish road, and trotting on hard along the edge of Harborne Wood. He had drunk as much wine as his son, but his hard and well-seasoned head was quite insensible to the effects of strong beverages, and he went on revolving all probable contingencies, somewhat sullen and out of humour, with all that had passed during the afternoon, and taking a very unpromising view of everybody and everything. "'I've a notion,' he thought, "'that old scoundrel Croyland is playing fast and loose about his daughter's marriage with my son.' He shall repent it if he do, and if Dick does not make the girl pay for all her airs and coldness when he's got her, he's no son of mine. He seems as great a fool as she is, though, and makes love to her sister without a penny, never saying a word to a girl who has forty thousand pounds. The thing shall soon be settled one way or another, however. I'll have a conference with Sir Robert on Friday and bring him to book. I'll not be trifled with any longer.' Here we have been kept more than four years, waiting till the girl chooses to make up her mind, and I'll not stop any longer. It shall be, yes or no, at once. He was still busy with such thoughts when he reached the angle of Harborne Wood, and a loud voice exclaimed, "'Hi, Mr. Radford!' "'Who the devil are you?' exclaimed that worthy gentleman, pulling in his horse, and at the same time putting his hand upon one of the holsters, which every one at that time carried at his saddle-bow. "'Harding, sir,' answered the voice, Jack Harding, and I wanted to speak a word with you. At the same time the man walked forward, and Mr. Radford immediately dismounting, gave his horse to the servants, 
and told them to lead him quietly on till they came to Tiffenden. Then, pausing till the sound of hoofs became somewhat faint, he asked with a certain degree of alarm, "'Well, Harding, what's the matter? What has brought you up in such a hurry to-night?' "'No great hurry, sir,' answered the smuggler. "'I came up about four o'clock, and finding that you were dining at Sir Robert's, I thought I would look out for you as you went home, having something to tell you. I got an inkling last night that, somehow or another, the people down at Hythe have some suspicion that you are going to try something, and I doubt that boy very much.' "'Indeed, indeed!' exclaimed Mr. Radford, evidently under great apprehension. "'What have they found out, Harding?' "'Why, not much, I believe,' replied the smuggler, "'but merely that there's something in the wind, and that you have a hand in it.' "'That's bad enough, that's bad enough,' repeated Mr. Radford. "'We must put it off, Harding. We must delay it, till this has blown by.' "'No, I think not, sir,' answered the smuggler. "'It seems to me, on the contrary, that we ought to hurry it, and I'll tell you why. "'You see, the wind changed about five, and if I'm not very much mistaken, "'we shall have a cloudy sky and dirty weather for the next week at least. "'That's one thing, but then another is this. "'The Ramleys are going to make a run this very night. "'Now, I know that the whole affair is blown, "'and though they may get the goods ashore, they won't carry them far. "'I told them so, just to be friendly.' but they wouldn't listen, and you know their rash way. Bill Ramley answered they would run the goods in broad daylight if they liked, that there was not an officer in all Kent who would dare to stop them. Now I know they will be caught tomorrow morning, somewhere up about your place. I rather think, too, your son has a hand in the venture, and if I were you, I would do nothing to make people believe that it wasn't my own affair altogether. Let them think what they please." "'and then they are not so likely to be on the lookout.' "'I see, I see,' cried Mr. Radford. "'If they catch these fellows and think that this is my venture, "'they will never suspect another. "'It's a good scheme. "'We had better set about it tomorrow night.' "'I don't know,' answered Harding. "'That cannot well be done, I should think. First, you must get orders over to the vessel to stand out to sea. "'Then you must get all your people together, "'and one half of them are busy upon this other scheme.' the Ramleys and young Chittenden, and him they call the Major, and all their parties. You must see what comes of that first, for one half of them may be locked up before tomorrow night. That's unfortunate indeed, said Mr. Radford thoughtfully. One must take a little ill luck with plenty of good luck, observed Harding, and it's fortunate enough for you that these wild fellows will carry through this mad scheme when they know they are found out before the start. "'Besides, I am not sure that it is not best to wait till the night after, "'or maybe the night after that. "'Then the news will have spread that the goods have been either run and hid away, "'or seized by the officers. "'In either case, if you manage well, they will think that it is your venture, "'and the fellows on the coast will be off their guard, "'especially Mole, who is the sharpest of them all.' "'Oh, I'll go down tomorrow and talk to Mole myself,' replied Mr. Radford. "'It will be well worth my while to give him a hundred guineas to wink a bit.' "'Don't try it! Don't try it!' exclaimed Harding quickly. "'It will do no good and a great deal of harm. "'In the first place you can do nothing with Mole. "'He never took a penny in his life.' "'Oh, every man has his price,' rejoined Mr. Radford, "'whose opinion of human nature, as the reader may have perceived, "'was not particularly high. "'It's only because he wants to be bid up to.' 
Mr. Mole thinks himself above five or ten pounds, but the chink of a hundred guineas is a very pleasant sound. "'He's as honest a fellow as ever lived,' answered Harding, "'and I tell you plainly, Mr. Radford, "'that if you offered him ten times the sum, he wouldn't take it. "'You would only show him that this venture is not your grand one, "'without doing yourself the least good. "'He's a fair, open enemy, and lets everyone know that, "'and lets everyone know that, as long as he's a riding officer here, "'he will do all he can against us.' "'Then he must be knocked on the head,' said Mr. Radford, "'in a calm and deliberate tone.' "'and it shall be done, too, if he meddles with my affairs.' "'It will not be I who do it,' replied Harding, "'unless we come hand to hand together. "'Then every man must take care of himself. "'But I should be very sorry, notwithstanding, "'for he's a straightforward, bold fellow, "'as brave as a lion, "'and with a good heart into the bargain. "'I wonder such an honest man "'ever went into such a rascally service.' The last observation of our friend Harding may perhaps sound strangely to the reader's ears, but some allowance must be made for professional prejudices, and it is by no means too much to say that the smugglers of those days, and even of a much later period, looked upon their own calling as highly honest, honourable, and respectable, regarding the customs as a most fraudulent and abominable institution, and all connected with it, more or less in the light of a band of swindlers and knaves, leagued together for the purpose of preventing honest men from pursuing their avocations in peace. Such were the feelings which induced Harding to wonder that so good a man as Mole could have anything to do with the prevention of smuggling. For he was so thoroughly convinced he was in the right himself that he could not conceive how anyone could see the case in any other point of view. "'Aye,' answered Mr. Radford, "'that is a wonder. If he is such a good sort of man,' but that I doubt. However, as you say, it would not do to put oneself in his power. I'll have him looked after, and in the meanwhile let us talk of the rest of the business. You say the night after tomorrow, or the night after that. I must know, however, for the men must be down. How are we to arrange that? Why, I'll see what the weather is like, was Harding's reply. Then I can easily send up to let you know, or, what will be better still, if you can gather the men together the day after tomorrow, in the different villages not far off the coast, and I should find it the right sort of night and get out to sea, they shall see a light on the top of Tolsford Hill, as soon as I am near in shore again. That will serve to guide them and puzzle the officers. Then let them gather and come down towards Dimchurch, where they will find somebody from me to guide them. "'They shall gather first at Saltwood,' said Mr. Radford, "'and then march down to Dimchurch. "'But how are we to manage about the ship?' "'Why, you must send an order,' answered Harding, "'for both days, and let your skipper know "'that if he does not see us the first, "'he will see us the second. "'You had better take it down with you at once,' "'replied Mr. Radford, "'and get it off early tomorrow. "'If you'll just come up to my house, "'I'll write it for you in a minute.' "'Aye, but I'm not going home tonight,' said the smuggler. "'I can have a bed at Mrs. Clare's, and I'm going to sleep there. "'So you can send it over when you like, in the morning, "'and I'll get it off in time. "'I wish you would not go hanging about after that girl "'when we've got such serious business in hand,' "'exclaimed Mr. Radford in a sharp tone. "'But the next moment he added, with a sudden change of voice, "'It doesn't signify tonight, however. "'There will be time enough, and they say you are going to marry her, Harding.' "'Is that true?' "'I should say that's my business,' replied Harding bluntly. 
but that I look upon it as an honour, Mr. Radford, that she's going to marry me, for a better girl does not live in the land. And I've known her a long while now, so I'm never likely to think otherwise. Aye, I've known her a long time, too, answered Mr. Radford, ever since her poor father was shot, and before, and a very good girl I believe she is. But now that you are over here, you may as well wait and hear what comes of these goods. Couldn't you just ride over to the Ramleys tomorrow morning? There you'll hear all about it. Harding laughed, but replied the next moment in a grave tone. I don't like the Ramleys, sir, and don't want to have more to do with them than I can help. I shall hear all about it soon enough, without going there. But I shan't, answered Mr. Radford. Then you had better send your son, sir, rejoined Harding. He's oftener there than I am. A great deal. Well, the matter is all settled then, either the night after tomorrow or the night after that. If the men keep a good lookout, they'll see a light on Tolsford Hill. Then they must gather as fast as possible at Saltwood and come on with anybody they may find there. Good night, Mr. Radford. Good night, Harding, good night, said Mr. Radford, walking on, and the other turning his steps back towards Harbour made his way by the first road on the right to the cottage where we have seen him in the earlier part of the day. It was a pleasant aspect that the cottage presented when he went in, which he did without any of the ceremonies of knocking at the door or ringing the bell, for he was sure of a welcome. There was but one candle lighted on the table, for the dwellers in the place were poor, but the room was small, and that one was quite sufficient to show the white walls and the neat shelves covered with crockery, and with one or two small prints in black frames. Besides, there was the fireplace, with a bright and cheerful but not large fire, for though in the month of September English nights are frequently cold and sometimes frosty, the weather had been as yet tolerably mild. Nevertheless, the log of fir at the top blazed high and crackled amidst the white and red embers below, and the flickering flame as it rose and fell caused the shadows to fall more vaguely or distinctly upon the walls, with a fanciful uncertainty of outline that had something cheerful yet mysterious in it. The widow was bending over the fire, with her face turned away and her figure in the shadow. The daughter was busily working with her needle, but her eyes were soon raised, and they were very beautiful eyes as Harding entered. A smile, too, was upon her lips, and though even tears may be lovely, and a sad look awakened deep and tender emotions, yet the smile of affection on the face we love is the brightest aspect of that bright thing the human countenance. It is what the sunshine is to the landscape, which may be fair in the rain or sublime in the storm, but can never harmonise so fully with the innate longing for happiness, which is in the breast of every one, as when lighted up with the rays that call all its excellence and all its powers into life and being. Harding sat down beside the girl and took her hand in his, saying, "'Well, Kate, this day three weeks, then, remember?' "'My mother says so,' answered the girl, with a cheek somewhat glowing. "'And then, you know, John, you are to give it up altogether. "'No more danger, no more secrets.' "'Oh, as for danger,' answered Harding, laughing, "'I did not say that, love. "'I don't know what life will be worth without danger. "'Every man is in danger all day long.' "'and I suppose that we are only given life "'just to feel the pleasure of it by the chance of losing it. "'But no dangers but the common ones, Kate. "'I'll give up the trade as you have made me promise, "'and I shall have enough by that time "'to buy out the whole vessel in which I've got shares, "'and what between that and the boats we shall do very well. 
You put me in mind with your fears of a song that wicked boy little Starlight used to sing. I learned it from hearing him. A more mischievous little dog does not live, but he has got a sweet pipe. Sing it, John, sing it, cried Kate. I love to hear you sing, for it seems as if you sing what you are thinking. No, I won't sing it, answered Harding, for it is a sad sort of song, and that won't do when I am so happy. Oh, I like sad songs, said the girl. They please me far more than all the merry ones. Oh, pray sing it, Harding, urged the widow. I am very fond of a song that makes me cry. This won't do that, replied the smuggler, but it is sadder than some that do, I always think. However, I'll sing it if you like, and in a fine, mellow, bass voice, to a very simple air, with a flattened third coming in every now and then, like the note of a wintry bird, he went on. Life's like a boat, rowing, rowing, over a bright sea, on the waves to float, flowing, flowing, away from her lee. Up goes the sheet, sailing, sailing, to catch the rising breeze, while the winds fleet, wailing, wailing, sigh o'er the seas. She darts through the waves, gaily, gaily, scattering the foam beneath her open graves, daily, daily, the blithest to entomb. Who needs the deep yawning, yawning, for its destined prey, when the night's dark sleep, dawning, dawning, wakens the bright day? Away o'er the tide, fearless, fearless, of all that lies beneath, let the waves still hide, cheerless, cheerless, all the stores of death. Stray where we may, roaming, roaming, either far or near, death is on the way, coming, coming, who's the fool to fear? The widow did weep, however, not at the rude song, though the voice that sung it was fine and perfect in the melody, but at the remembrances which it awakened, remembrances on which she loved to dwell, although they were so sad. Hi, Harding, she said, it's very true what your song says. Whatever way one goes, death is near enough, and I don't know that it's a bit nearer on the sea than anywhere else. Not a whit, replied Harding. God's hand is upon the sea as well as upon the land, Mrs. Clare, and if it is his will that we go, why, we go, and if it is his will that we stay, he doesn't want strength to protect us. No, indeed, answered Mrs. Clare, and it's that which comforts me, for I think that what is God's will must be good. I'm sure when my poor husband went out in the morning six years ago, come the 10th of October next, as well and as hearty as a man could be, I never thought to see him brought home a corpse, and I left a lone widow with my poor girl, and not knowing where to look for any help. But God raised me up friends where I least expected them. "'Why, you had every right to expect that Sir Robert would be kind to you, Mrs. Clare,' rejoined Harding, when your husband had been in his service for sixteen or seventeen years. "'No, indeed, I hadn't,' said the widow, "'for Sir Robert was always, we thought, a rough, hard master,' grumbling continually, till my poor man could hardly bear it, for he was a free-spoken man, as I dare say you remember, Mr. Harding, and would say his mind to any one, gentle or simple. He was as good a soul as ever lived, answered Harding, a little rash and passionate, but none the worse for that. Aye, but it was that which set the head-keeper against him, answered the widow, and he set Sir Robert, making out that Edward, was always careless and insolent. "'But he did his duty as well as any man, "'and knowing that he didn't like to be found fault with. 
However, I don't blame Sir Robert, for since my poor man's death he has found out what he was worth, and very kind he has been to me, to be sure. The cottage and the garden, and the good bit of ground at the back, and twelve shillings a week into the bargain, have we had from him ever since. Ay, and I am sure nothing can be kinder than the two young ladies, said Kate. They are always giving me something, and Miss Edith taught me all I know. I should have been sadly ignorant if it had not been for her, and a great deal of trouble I gave her. God bless her, cried Harding heartily. She's a nice young lady, I believe, though I never saw her but twice, and then she looked very sad. Ay, she has cause enough, poor thing, said Mrs. Clare, though I remember her as blithe as the morning lark, a great deal gayer than Miss Zara, gay as she may be. Ay, I know, they crossed her love, answered Harding, and that's enough to make one sad, though I never heard the rights of the story. Oh, it was bad enough to break her heart, poor thing, replied Mrs. Clare. You remember young Leighton, the rector's son, a fine, handsome, bold lad as ever lived, and as good as he was handsome. Well, he was quite brought up with these young ladies, you know, always up at the hall, and Miss Edith always down at the rectory, and one would have thought Sir Robert blind or foolish not to fancy that two such young things would fall in love with each other. And so they did, to be sure. Many's the time I've seen them down here, in this very cottage, laughing and talking and as fond as a pair of doves, for Sir Robert used to let them do just whatever they liked, and many a time used to send young Harry Leighton to take care of Miss Croyland when she was going out to walk any distance. So, very naturally, they promised themselves to each other, and one day, when he was twenty and she just sixteen, they got a prayer book at the rectory and read over the marriage ceremony together, and took all the vows down on their bended knees. I remember it quite well, for I was down at the rectory that very day helping the housekeeper, and just as they had done, old Mr. Leighton came in, and found them somewhat confused, and the book open between them. He would know what it was all about, and they told him the truth. So then he was in a terrible taking, and he got Miss Croyland under his arm and went up to Sir Robert directly and told him the whole story without a minute's delay. Everyone thought it would end in being a match, for though Sir Robert was very angry and insisted that Harry Leighton should be sent to his regiment immediately, for he was then just home for a bit on leave, he did not show how angry he was at first, but very soon after he turned Mr. Leighton out of the living and made him pay, I don't know what, for dilapidations, so that he was arrested and put in prison, which broke his heart, poor man, and he died. Harding gave Sir Robert Croyland a hearty oath, and Mrs. Clare proceeded to tell her tale, saying, I did not give much heed to the matter then, for it was just at that time that my husband was killed, and I could think of nothing else, but when I came to hear of what was going on, I found that Sir Robert had promised his daughter to this young Radford. As nasty a vermin as ever lived, said Harding. Well, she won't have him, I'm sure, continued the widow, for it has been hanging off and on for these six years. People at first said it was because they were too young, but I know that she has always refused, and declared that nothing should ever drive her to marry him or anyone else, for the law might say what it liked, but her own heart and her own conscience told her that she was Harry Leighton's wife, and could not be any other man's as long as he was living. Susan, her maid, heard her say so to Sir Robert himself, but he still keeps teasing her about it, and tells everybody she's engaged to young Radford. 
"'He'll go to the devil,' said Harding, "'and I'll go to bed, Mrs. Clare, "'for I must be up early tomorrow "'to get a good many things to rights. "'God bless you, Kate, my love. "'I dare say I shall see you before I go, "'for I must measure the dear little finger.' "'And giving her a hearty kiss, "'Harding took a candle "'and retired to the snug room "'that had been prepared for him. End of chapter 10